saving that for somebody in just a minute. I'm just kidding. If you don't know me, you think I'm going to hang someone. I'm not. Uh, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. Well, if you're a guest, my name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're in the middle of a series. All the way through the summer, we're working through uh, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and probably the most confusing book in the Bible, and we're doing our best to understand it. And we're right in the middle of the book of Revelation, uh, using these images that uh, John, who was a pastor, Pastor John, gives us of a beast, a dragon, and the empire, and so today we're going to talk about something that's really, really hard to see. So here's what I want you to do as we get ready to read the scripture, as you stand to do that, as you stand to read the scripture uh, out of respect for God's word, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to change my mind. Now you know the people who will not change their mind because they were like, "Mm no, no, I'm not doing that. We're going to look at, uh, uh, a little bit longer here, Revelation 17, Revelation 18, a passage from each. That's what we're looking at this morning. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along on the screen. Here's what Pastor John tells us. Uh, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, if you remember from uh, chapter 12 and 13, that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, and held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And then John tells us some more, and then in in chapter 18 he tells us this, And after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries." Then I heard another voice from heaven say, and we're all going to read this in yellow together out loud. Ready? Here we go. This is to us. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks for standing. Well, I I want to just talk, okay? Gonna, we're going we're gonna to talk. This is, this is hard, uh, hard for us to see. What John tells us um, is what's referred to uh, through the scriptures as prophetic. Now, usually when we think about something prophetic, what we're, what we're thinking about is someone telling us about the future. And there's that element in the scriptures that someone tells us what's going to happen in the future. And there's some elements of that in the book of Revelation. Uh, but more often than not, when someone is prophetic in the Old Testament and then all the way in the New Testament, what they're doing is they're holding up to us the truth of the world that we live in and saying, listen, this is the world that you live in. Pay attention. You need to see it or you're going to be just like it. Come out. And so uh, I, I want to try and do that today. I want to try and be prophetic and help us see something that again is very hard to see, and if we don't see it, then we'll be it. Can you, can you get in gear with that? Right? Again, you're probably thinking, he really is going to hang someone from the rope. That's great. Um, now, I know as we've gone through this series, this, uh, the interpretation of the book of Revelation is a very, uh, at least in the church world, a very controversial thing. Uh, so there, there have been kind of two categories of you that have been listening to this series. One, if, if you're in the category, if you just don't know, you, maybe you've never read the book of Revelation or you're new, to, you're new to, to faith, to Christianity, and you're exploring all of it, and there's some curiosity around it. Movies have been made about the book of Revelation and the end times. Um, I, I think that's fantastic. And what I want you to know is that the Bible is honest and raw, not fake and proper. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? And very often what the Bible will do is unflinchingly tell us the truth in imaginative ways to help us see it in a different way. And it unflinchingly tells us that there is a God and neither you nor I are God. (laughs) Just turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not God and neither are you. (laughs) 
right? So if you're in that, if you're in that boat, you're, you're, in a great, you're in a great spot because you're, you're learning something. Now, this, some of the rest of us, we've grown up around this or we have uh, uh, opinions about how Revelation is to be interpreted. And here's what I just want you to know, okay? This is kind of a disclaimer as we, before we get into this, but this will help us understand this together. I, I want to give you the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is in, in uh, Turkey today. And this is what he said about any time anyone preaches or gives you a prophetic message, a message about the truth. This is what he says. Now notice, this is very, this is very important. Uh, we'll put this on the screen. Test them all. Hold on to what's good. Reject every kind of evil. So let me give you, let me give you three things. Again, this is a disclaimer before we kind of jump into this. Uh, you need to test what someone preaches or pronounce, pronounces to you, especially when they're preaching or pronouncing to you out of the Bible. Um, there is no pastor or preacher or spiritual leader who is infallible. I am not infallible. I am a human being. So is every person who's ever uh, ex- attempted to interpret and explain the scriptures and say, this is what the Lord says to us. So what, I, what, I, what you need to be doing if you're a Christian is you need to be testing everything that gets said to you. So that's why you need to read the Bible for yourself, because I could just be making this up, and you'd never know, right? So I want you to do that. I want you to test what you, what you hear against the whole Scripture. Most importantly, the life of Jesus. Does, it, does, it, does anything you hear, what I say, listen on the radio, a podcast, does it square with the whole of Scripture, and does it square with the life of Jesus? Okay, so you need to do that. The second thing, though, is you also need to test your own interpretation and recognize that you aren't infallible either and that you come from a perspective uh, too. So you've you, you got to ask questions like, okay, if you're hearing something in the scriptures that makes you uncomfortable, then you need to say, well, okay, do I understand the context of this passage? Uh, do I understand the author that wrote this book and why they wrote this book? Uh, do, I, do I understand how ch- the church has interpreted this across? Because we're, we're not the first, this is not the first rodeo for God's people. We're not the first church that's ever tried to interpret the scriptures. We're part of a 2,000-year-long tradition. You can go back and access all of those uh, pieces of interpretation. Uh, and you've got to ask yourself, are you simply repeating a view that you have heard, or is it something that, in the context of the, the Christian community, you've researched and tried to understand for yourself, right? So you've got you to test your own interpretation. And then you've got to test your own filter. Uh, one guy I know talks about it this way. He says there, there are what he calls um, open-handed issues and close-handed issues. Here's what he means. Uh, there are some things for us as Christians that we, we say they're close-handed things. We'll talk about them. We'll do our best to explain them, but we're not going to bend on them. So you're never going to hear me say that Jesus didn't live a sinless life and die for your sins as an atoning sacrifice on the cross for you and was raised bodily from the dead. That's a close-handed thing. I'm, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will do my best to convince you of that, explain that to you, why that's actually rational and makes sense, and it, is, it makes a, a huge difference in your life. But I'm not going to change that. Okay? That's, that's, the, that's the truth of God's word. That's, we're not going to bend on that. But then there's a whole host of other things that are open-handed issues that Christians just disagree on. They see it differently. So when I grew up, uh, my mom, when I went into the seventh grade, and we had, um, we had a, a uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a segment of PE on square dancing. <laughs> my mom who grew up in this, this tribal church that we're a part of, Church of the Nazarene, she wrote a note to the school and excused me from being a part of square dancing because to her understanding, square dancing or dancing of any sort was somehow going to corrupt young people and was evil, right? Maybe you think that's really dumb. Okay, I kind of do too. <laughs> but it's, a cl- it's an open-handed thing. You can disagree on that and still be a follower of Jesus. Now, I would tell you that the interpretation of the book of Revelation is an open-handed thing. Now, again, if it goes, anything you hear is against the spirit of Jesus, then you need to reject it and go, okay, well, that doesn't fit. But how someone interprets it, how someone explains it is an open-handed thing. Do you see, do you see that? So I want, you to, I want you to apply those tests to it. Uh, I want you to be like the Bereans. This is how, uh, this is how it was described. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Listen, for they received the message with great eagerness. Listen, this is what I want you to do. 
and examined the scriptures every day, uh-oh, uh, to see if what Paul said was true. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. You need to do that for anybody you hear who tells you something from God's word, including me. Okay? All, all, all on the same page there? Okay, thank you for that disclaimer. And I, I say all this to say, I, I want you to do this because there are people who are watching us as Christians. And when we, when we, when we are divisive and disagree in a mean-spirited way or call a person names who sees it differently than us, the world around us goes, well, that's, there's not really much to their faith. You see, it's actually important that we do that together. Okay, there we go. Disclaimer number one. Uh, now, here's, here's the thing I want you to see that, Paul, that John talks to uh, us about is what John is trying to say to us when he talks about Babylon, and I'm going to unpack for you Babylon from the Bible, um, from the Old Testament all the way into the book of Revelation. Uh, what he's trying to help us see is that we are all part of a system. It's just what it means to be in the world. I, I, I remember one of the first times this really made sense to me. I worked when I was in seminary, uh, getting a, studying to, for being a pastor, I worked for a company uh, that was a custom imprinter of sweatshirts and t-shirts. So you, if you went to Purdue or you went to Notre Dame and you bought one of their sweatshirts, uh, it would say Purdue or Notre Dame, but the company I worked for would make, if you looked on the tag, they would be the ones who made it, one of the largest companies in the, in the nation that, that did that. And I remember I, I learned about how uh, when you walked into Notre Dame or into Purdue and you saw a sweatshirt that was $95 or $75, and you're like, what in the world? Why is this $95? How, are you, how, how in the world can they get away with charity? Well, one, they're trying to make money. But two, I understood that there was a chain, there was a, a system behind all of that. So they would buy it from the factory, and the factory would buy it, would spend about $1.25 on product, and then they would pay their workers, and so they would add, and then they would sell it to a middleman who would sell it to another middleman who would then buy it. And all along the way, money got added up. And uh, what happened was jobs were created and economies were helped. And, I mean, we want more of that, right? We want to be a part of that system because that gives people jobs and uh, helps people. And, and so I found out that's why, you know, then when Notre Dame gets it, they double the price so they can make a, a, an income. And that's why you pay $75 for a sweatshirt when you go to a place like that. And, and when the system works right, it's great for everybody. And it lifts people. And we want more of that. So, frankly, I think it's a good thing. That's a, that's a great thing because people have jobs and economies are better and, and it works for everybody. And that's, that's true for everything that we all live inside of a system. And if, if it works right, there are winners and winners and winners and winners. But this is what John's trying to say to us, okay? He's saying, yeah, you live in a system. You need to see it or you'll be it. But you also need to read that there's winners, but there are also losers. There are people who get hurt by the system, uh, now, again, I, I'm going to show you some pictures, and I'm not showing you these pictures so that you feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to help you see what John is trying to teach us, okay? Uh, so you, you, how, many, how many of you have a TV? Okay, me too, right? Uh, how many of you had one of those, and maybe you still have one of those TVs that weighs about 400 pounds? Those old school, right? Some of you still have the, right? Some of you have gotten rid of the 400-pound old school TV, have you ever wondered where that ends up? Right? When you throw something away, there really is no away. It goes somewhere. Uh, There's actually a huge market for recycled electronic goods. And so sometimes it will end up in a place like Ghana in the western part of Africa in a dump like this where uh, people go and they make their living, and that smoke that you see behind there is they'll light a fire to burn the, the, the plastic and the rubber off of the electronic components, and then we'll take the electronic components and go sell it, and for that day, we'll have enough to eat because you threw away your 400-pound television, right? If you, if you went there, it, it's as bad as that. It's, that's how bad it is. So there are losers in the system, too. Uh, how many of you have a, a, uh, a, a phone, a smartphone of some sort, so just a flip phone, right? Somebody, okay, me too. Um, I, I didn't know, I, I, I found out that the battery that comes from, uh, that is used in your phone, in my phone, is, uses cobalt, a, a, a mineral, 
And one of the places uh, in the world that is mined is in uh, the Congo, which is not far from, from Ghana right here. And what happens is they have what they're called artisanal miners. You've heard that phrase artisanal, like you go to a bakery and it's an artisanal bakery and it's meant to make you go, oh, it's like much better than a normal baker. Um, they, they call these guys artisanal miners, which is really a, a nice way of saying uh, we're not going to provide any safety equipment. Uh, we're not going to go in and check the tunnels before anyone does anything. We're just going to send a guy in there with a shovel that he can get for himself. And if he can find a light, he can go in there and he can dig his own tunnels. And if they collapse, that's his fault. It's not our fault. And there's a whole economy of cobalt that comes from the Congo where your battery and, and your phone gets the power and mine. Mine too. I, I have it too. And uh, like here's a picture of one of the kids uh, taking the haul from the day. Uh, next slide, please, if you would. Taking the in a bag in the Congo, um, and so you you and I can have a battery, and the rest of us in most of the world. Now, now if you went to Africa, you would you would find this there that there are more uh, cell phones than there are people in Africa. So they benefit from it too. Okay, you understand that? Now, again, I, I, I am not showing this so you feel terrible and horrible. I'm just trying to say we all are part of a system, and it's almost inescapable when we're part of a system to not some way participate in oppressing somebody somewhere. Right? Can, can we all just see that? Can, can, you, can you get that and give it that? In fact, they've put some strictures on the companies who do this, and the people at Apple said, now listen, we could, we could gladly pull out of the Congo, and we can find other places to get cobalt, but if we do that, we're going to make that economy collapse because those men, even though they work and they may not eat that day if they don't get enough because they go and they sell it that day, and then they can go buy flour or rice. And If we pull out, then we collapse their entire economy. Can you see the conundrum? You know, it's hard. It's hard to think about these kinds of things. And, and very honestly, we would rather not see these, thing, see these kinds of things, but it's just, it's just part of us seeing that there's inequities in the world that we, we, in some ways we will always have with us. And, and all, all, here's all I'm trying to say, okay, because we need to hear what John says to us, is that we under, have to understand that we're part of a system, and if we don't see it, we'll end up being it. And if we can't name it and we can't critique it, then we'll in the end defend it. Now, we're part of the system here, um, here in Northwest Indiana, uh, th- there are people who uh, literally give their back to an industry. And when your back is worn out and your knees are worn out, the industry throws you away and hires someone younger and cheaper. Right? It's a system. Do you see that? I, I, again, I'm not, I am not telling you this so you feel awful. This is not a, you, you guys should feel terrible about this. It really is. Uh, it really is. When we talk about the man, this is what we're, this is what John's talking about. He's talking about the man. Okay. So I, I wanted you to see. So this is this kind of heavy thing. So I wanted you to see this clip. Uh, this is from my, one of my favorite movies, The School of Rock, with Jack Black, where he's talking about the man in a couple scenes here. So just about a minute long. Check this out. What you want to learn something? Yes, I do. What you want me to teach you something? You want to learn something? All right. Here's a useful lesson for you. Give up. Just quit. Because in this life, you can't win. Yeah, you can try. But in the end, you're just going to lose big time because the world is run by the man. Who? The man. Oh, you don't know the man? Oh, well, he's everywhere. In the White House, down the hall, Miss Mullins. She's the man. And the man ruined the ozone. And he's burning down the Amazon. And he kidnapped Shamu and put her in a chlorine tank, Okay. (laughs) And there used to be a way to stick it to the man. It was called rock and roll. But guess what? Oh, no. The man ruined that, too, with a little thing called MTV. So don't waste your time trying to make anything cool or pure or awesome, because the man's just going to call you a fat, washed-up loser and crush your soul. So do yourselves a favor and just give up. Uh, good work, people. We will continue with our lecture on the man. When we return, Miss Mullins, you're the man. Thank you, Frankie. <laughs> you're mad. It's a, uh, <clears throat> it's a rare blood disease. Stick it to demon neosis. <laughs> What's that? I've never heard of it. You're lucky, because it's hell. Yeah. So, so here's here's what here's what Pastor John is trying to say to us. Um, he's, trying to, he's trying to name the system that we're all a part of. And the name that he gives to the system that we're all a part of that's all the way through the scriptures is Babylon. 
Now, if you were to do a, a kind of a study of Babylon, you would go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, um, when people uh, moved to the plain of Shinar. Shinar is in, in current modern-day Iraq. Hold off on that picture, if you would, guys. Um, and in modern-day Iraq, and began the city of what's uh, known as Babylon. And uh, there they built the Tower of Babel. That's a Hebrew word that means to be confused, if you know that story in Genesis chapter 11. Um, that place was settled, has been settled for thousands of years. Uh, one guy that settled, his name, his name is Hammurabi. Maybe you've heard of Hammurabi. Hammurabi came up with what's called the Code of Hammurabi. If you're ever in a discussion with someone about ethics and morality, and they say, you don't need God to be moral, what about the Code of Hammurabi? He was one of the first people to write a, a moral code. And he lived in what's Babylon. The, probably the most famous person in Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, who, uh, put that picture back up if you would, uh, built the hanging, uh, what most scholars say was the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, it was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. If you went to Babylon, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was uh, palm trees and the architecture. And you can see down there at the bottom, the blue gate, in a museum, they've, uh, they've, based on their excavations, um, they found some of the ruins of Babylon, and there's, there's a recreation of what the gates of Babylon look like. A beautiful, beautiful city. I mean, just a, just a gorgeous place. Uh, you would want to live there. You'd want to have a house there. You'd want to be a part of what's happening in Babylon because it was the center of commerce, and it was the center of money and luxury, and um, all kinds of good things came out of it. I think we've got a picture here of, the, of one of the lions that was sculpted, and it was at the entrance to the city. Just beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautiful work. Um, and, and in fact, if you know the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel and the lion's den, remember, anybody know that story? And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace, that's, this is when peop, the people of God, uh, Babylon was the superpower at the time, and they came and attacked the people of Israel and carted them off and took them in exile into Babylon, and, uh, and that whole story is set in Babylon, is the superpower of the time. Um, we have out, if you walk out into our lobby right there, there's a verse from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7 that says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I sent you. That's from uh, Jeremiah writing to those people in exile in Babylon, saying this is how you're to live when you're in Babylon. Uh, Peter, and he's writing his letter, First Peter, at the end of his letter, he says, Give my greetings to those who are in Babylon. Babylon is the symbol in the Bible for man's attempt to build something without God. It's, an, it's a description of the human system that always creates winners, but losers too. Uh, it, it's what's represented, I just was walking, please read nothing into this picture. As someone pointed out that it had a particular building in it. I was just trying to capture a scene of Chicago when we were there the other day for my wife's birthday. It'd be like a, a, him saying to us, Chicago, Chicago is the problem. Chicago, there's winners, but there's also losers in a city like that. So here's, here's what he says to us. He says that Babylon is the hardest for us to see. So we've talked about the dragon Right? Oh, no, we don't want to be a part of a dragon. We, we reject a dragon. A beast, I don't want to be part of a beast. We don't want to. But you, when you talk to us about Babylon, a beautiful place where people are made wealthy, and he personifies Babylon as a woman, uh, a, a beautiful woman who's seductive, who makes you rich. Right? I, I'm a guy. I understand there's women in the room. A handsome man who makes you feel wanted. I, I don't know what the equivalent is. I just know it's a guy. Right? All guys, are, we, get, we get that like a beautiful woman wants me and will give me money? That's great. Sign me up, right? Uh, but what Pastor John is doing, he's pulling back the curtain and he's saying, listen, there's a character to any system that's set up by human beings that you have to be aware of. And so I want to give you the three things that he says are, are, are the system. Because here, he's talking about Rome. You can read through there, and he talks about seven hills. If you know Rome, Rome has uh, seven mountains. Se- Rome has seven hills around it. And, and he says, you know, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17, 18. He's referring to Rome and the, the, the empire of Rome, the, the Roman Empire. And it's a symbol for the powerful systems of, of the world that generate wealth and use up people. And this is the first characteristic, uh, how he personifies it, is that, that Babylon is seductive. And so he says that the kings of the earth commit adultery with her and the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated. In other words, the powerful and the ordinary love it alike. And they both benefit from it. It looks good on the outside, but he, he, he says Babylon is a prostitute. Now, a good Jewish person reading what John wrote would have immediately thought 
all the way back to the book of Proverbs in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, where, he, he, where the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, personifies wisdom as a woman, right? Because, men, we all know women are wiser than us. Can, can I get an amen? <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> but then he also personifies folly as a woman. I'm not commenting on that because um, I like my life. Um, but but he, he characterizes her as a, a, he calls her the wayward wife, a, a prostitute. Um, the word he uses in Revelation is a whore. Uh, and, and so every Jewish reader would go, oh, he's talking about the wayward wife. And so Proverbs says this, with persuasive words she leads him, leads him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird uh, darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. In other words, this is a woman who, who seduces you, but really, in the end, she will own you and kill you and take your life from you. And, and so what John is saying is every human system, one of the characteristics of Babylon, every human system, is that it's seductive. It's like, oh, if I go there, I could make a lot of money. Man, I'd be successful. Uh, second characteristic is that it abuses people. So he says that he saw that woman who was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. In other words, the Rome at that day was, was killing the Christians. Um, and, and in order to keep power, any system will kill anybody who questions it. That's why uh, the most modern example is Martin Luther King. He questioned, you know why he, he got shot? He questioned the system. Do you know why Jesus was killed? Not because he hugged babies. You don't get killed because you kiss babies. You get killed when you question the system. Right? That's why he got killed. Uh, it abuses people. And Revelation 18 lists all these wonderful things that come from the city, and we can all agree they're all wonderful, but then it ends and says that human beings were sold as slaves. So there was human trafficking. Um, people were property. There were people who are addicts. These are all the results of a system that's all about making people rich and seducing people into a lifestyle of comfort and ease and saying that's the point of life. It, it, it stokes the love, what, what, Timothy, what Paul wrote to Timothy and says the, is the love of money. Here's how he says it, most, one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. The love of money, not money, not money itself. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. John is saying that Babylon fuels the furnace and fire of the love of money and so blinds us to the system. We can't see it. And then this is the third characteristic, is that uh, the, the, the Babylon rewards those who play her game. And, and in chapter 18, he talks about the merchants and the sea captains and the kings and all the people who benefit, who, who just say, oh, how could Babylon be judged? I've gotten so much out of it. It's done so much good for so many people. Uh, and and it, what happens is it grinds up everyone else and creates policies that favor the system. So here's, here's what John's saying. Anytime you see a system that is seductive, Yet there are losers who are abused and hurt and rewards the people who play its game. There you have what the scriptures call Babylon. And if you don't see it, you will be it. Now, he's, he's just describing the world that we live in. He's just telling us the world because we, we all are part of a system. Uh, there has existed no human system. There is no language in the scriptures for any system, any, any iteration of humanity that God says, yeah, that's the right one. Um, the, only, the only place in the scriptures where any city is mentioned that's positive is Jerusalem. And we get to the very end of the book of Revelation, uh, that's a symbol for God's holy city. He's not necessarily talking about the actual Jerusalem, but he says, and I saw the new Jerusalem, when God recreates everything, coming down out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There is no other human system that you and I live in that is approved of by the scriptures. Every human system is judged by the scriptures and called Babylon. So if you, live in, if you lived in Mexico City, then you would have to go, the, the system that is the country of Mexico is Babylon. 
If you lived in Canada, you would have to say, I mean, there's some great things about Canada. Uh, there's hockey, if you like hockey. I don't know, is that great? I don't even, I don't even follow hockey. But it's still Babylon. Uh, if you lived in Switzerland, the most neutral country in the world, there's still a system and there's still people who get abused in that system. Then you also have to apply it to us too and go, well, where we live, that is also Babylon. This is what John's trying to help us see. If we don't see it, then we'll be it. And then this is what he tells us, okay? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time here together talking about. He tells us, okay, once you see it, then you have to resist it. His, his language is this in verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Uh, so, and obviously, we are in Babylon because you, you can't be called out of something that you aren't already in, right? You, you get that, logic of that. Uh, he's, he's referencing, again, the Jewish people would have um, automatically thought about Egypt when they were in Egypt and they were in slavery and they were in bondage and they got out of Egypt, so like it physically got out of Egypt. But the challenge in the rest of the Old Testament and then all the way into the New Testament is that it's much harder to get Egypt out of people. <laughs> you know, when, you're, when you benefit from something, it's much harder to get the tentacles of the way it operated out of you. And so you have to see it or you will, you'll be it. And this is, this is, this is the human way. The oppressed, the people who are on the bottom, when they get power, they always end up oppressing other people. That's just that's the human, it's the Bible just points that out. But we have to see it, and we have to, we have to name it. We say, yeah, I, I'm not going to get my value. I might be in that place, but I'm not going to get my values from that place. This is how, how John says it in his, one of his other letters. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Wow. Meditate on that. For everything in the world, and he's giving us a description of Babylon, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Babylon, the world, Babylon, and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So what, what, the, 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 what we're encouraged to have instead is a put our citizenship, because what, what he's saying is don't be a citizen of Babylon be a citizen of something else. And so yeah, Peter says it to it like this. He says, hey, we listen. We call on a father who judges each per- person's work impartially. So live out your time here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. I don't know. Do we have this on the screen, guys? I don't know if we do. Uh, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So we're to, in, in relation to the world around us, we're to look at the world around us as though we don't belong. We're not from it. I, I have some measure of this because I was born in a different country, and so um, when, when I was in the sixth grade, we had this uh, all-city like, choir that everyone was re- required to be a part of, and I remember we sang uh, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen as part of a sixth grade choir. I know, you missed it. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> but I remember, I remember singing at when they would go, Born in the USA, I, I would sing. I was not born in the USA, I was not, I kind of, I kind of understand that, I'm like, I'm not from here, though this is my home, we have to have that kind of, like, I'm not from here, yeah, I live here, but I'm not from here, Uh, uh, Paul says it in Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, Um, that's where, that's where we're from, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, so that means if our citizenship is in heaven, then we get our values from heaven. And so the church is always, we've, we've always struggled with this for 2,000 years. We've tried to, because there's, there's always a Babylon. And, and we've always wrestled with this. And, and what, what the people who follow Jesus for 2,000 years have found is that the church is to itself the people of God. I'm not talking about this room. I'm not talking about this gathering. I'm talking about you and me, us together. The church, the people of God the big C church all around the world. We're to be a, a, different, a different way of life. We're to be an alternative lifestyle because we all collectively say our citizenship is somewhere else and so our values are for some, from somewhere else and we, we will name the systems that hurt people. We will recognize that there are positive things and that we understand that some people can benefit from that but we're gonna name the system and we're not gonna say that that's the hope of the world. We're gonna say that Jesus is the hope of the world not the system that we live in, as good as it might currently be. So our, our values come from heaven. So let me, give you two, let me give you two examples of that. So if our values come from heaven, so the, on an issue like abortion, we would say, okay, 
on abortion, you know, what a heinous thing that an innocent life is taken. What a heartbreak. The God who is for life. So if, if you want to abort a baby, because we're a church, we, we, we value life from the beginning to the end, the cradle to the grave. And if you don't want that baby, then what if you would bring it to us and we would adopt that baby? Right? Because in, in heaven, no, no babies are aborted. No mom is in the position to have to make a decision like that or because she has no money or to selfishly make a decision like that and say, you know, I just don't want this baby. I want to be inconvenient. That doesn't happen in heaven. And so because our citizenship is there, our actions reflect it now. So we act like heaven is a reality among us because we're a colony of heaven. Or on the issue of, of immigration, I'm not talking about political on any of these, either of these issues, okay? I'm talking about biblical. Because there's no strangers and aliens in, in heaven and everyone has a welcome that's there. <laughs> in fact, the, the book of Revelation paints the picture of, and I saw before me a great multitude from every tribe and color and nation and tongue. Because that's heaven, then we're a colony and we get our values from there. Then if someone, we're, I'm, not, I'm not telling our government what, how they ought to operate. I'm saying how the church ought to operate, okay? I don't care how our government operates. I care about the church, how the church operates. Then if someone's struggling, then we say, we'll, we'll take care of you. Why? Because our values are from heaven. Do you see that? Um, you, you, are, you and I are either on, again, John, Pastor John paints the picture very stark. We're either on Team Beast or on team lamb. It's just either or. And if we don't see team beast and Babylon and how, how the beast, because the woman rides on the beast. In other words, the beast is her handler. Do, do you see what I'm saying? This is what John says, is always behind any Babylon is the beast. So I wanted you to hear, from, uh, hear, hear a story of um, Michael Treem. He's going to tell you a little bit about his story about being part of uh, Babylon. He's going to come up right now and um, tell you just a little bit of his story. And uh, we're going to talk about, just, just for a couple of minutes here, we're going to talk real practically about how this would work itself out in your life and in my life. And so um, um, Michael's going to tell a little bit of his story. Michael uh, left the FBI after, and thank you for getting the blue shirt memo that's plaid with dark jeans. Thank you Absolutely. for getting that. Absolutely. We did not plan that. We didn't. It's like a before and after picture, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so uh, you left a career, a long career in the FBI. Yes. And now you're studying to be a pastor. Correct. Right. So how in the world did you get to that? Tell us just a little bit of your story. Well, to understand how I got there, you have to understand where I came from. So I grew up um, on a dairy farm in northwestern Illinois, um, and it was there on the farm that I learned uh, values, uh, morals, uh, in my work ethic. And in the late 1980s, uh, the economy was bad and family farms were, uh, falling apart and they were failing. And there was, um, an understanding that our farm was going to go under, we were going to lose it. And so very early on, I had to come up with a plan on what do I do? Uh, what do I do next? And so I had conversations with my dad, and he said, you know, you, you continue to work hard, you find a, a good job, you work hard, and then you'll, uh, you'll have a retirement and something to settle for. And what my dad was saying was um, really to be a part of the system. And so from that point on, my journey um, kind of became like, like this. If you think of this is your life. This represents your life, that on, on this side we're born and on this side we die. And essentially what we do is to get from this side to over here, we make decisions so that way when we get to this end, that life is good, that we're all taken care of and everything's going to be wonderful. And so that became kind of uh, the symbol for my life. Um, I, everything I did was for that. And so I left the farm, I uh, joined the army, I was part of military, military intelligence. Um, there, my work ethic was quickly recognized, I excelled, I received awards and accolades, was soldier of the year, and was building this persona within me on, on what I needed to do. And so I left uh, the bureau, I'm sorry, I left the, the army and uh, went to work for Raytheon E-Systems. I was hired on there uh, to lead uh, as a lead engineering technician over six programs. Now, you have to understand the significance of this. 
I was 26 years old, and I was hired on over guys that had been with the company for 15 and 20 years, not to lead one, but to lead six programs. From that, I developed a little bit of an ego. I was like, hey, look at me. I'm pretty good. So from there, because uh, of the work that I did in the Army and, and Raytheon, um, the Bureau, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, caught wind of that, and they hired me, and I was hired on in Dallas as an electronics technician. And so, um, again, I applied my work ethic and did everything that I thought the system wanted, and uh, I excelled in what I did and was awarded things and whatnot, and then eventually I was promoted to be the technical manager of the Chicago division. Um, and I served in that role for 12 years. Uh, I was very, very successful in what I did, always applying this, this logic. And so at the very end of my career, uh, I had a very solid six-figure income, pretty much a guaranteed seven-figure um, retirement. I had job security. I had authority and power, that meant I had the ability to tell people this is what you're going to do, and I could go places and carry that authority with me. Um, and I was respected by my peers, um, and at the very end of my career at a national conference, I was recognized uh, by um, the program manager amongst my peers as the most innovative technical manager in the FBI today. That's a pretty bold statement. And I, you know, my chest was swelling with all that. And I say all that for a reason. Because in a moment when I should have been the happiest in my life, I was miserable. Because the system couldn't feed my heart. You see, my, my marriage was falling apart. My family life was so-so. I was unhappy at my job. And what I didn't know is I was on the brink of suffering from major depression. And so it was at that point that I decided that the system wasn't going to work anymore and that I was going to start trusting God and submit and move on uh, with a relationship with God. Yeah. So when you, when you look back at what you did, if you were to kind of make it, you know, you're looking back at, because you made a lot of shifts in your life, and I know right. you're telling like a, 30,000 foot view of, right. of your story, but um, what are the things that you did that everyone here could walk out of here and say, I could do those things myself in my own life that would help you? Where, where did that start, if you were to name those things? Uh, well, it started with submission. Okay. And that. So you, you have to understand that uh, where I was, um, because of all the success that I had, that I had won as far as the system was concerned, I had won. Um, and I had this ego, so submission was not a word in my vocabulary. And I remember uh, driving into work one day, and I was praying, and I finally got to a point where uh, I started weeping and, and crying as I was praying. And I said, God, I'm, this is not the man I ever intended to be. I don't want to be this man anymore. And I said, I submit to you, and I want to do your will. I said, break me and make me the man that you want me to be. And it was from that moment on, uh, it was a catalyst for all the change that has happened in my mind, it, it, or happened in my life. It has gone back to that very moment. So, so as, a part of the, as a part of the system, you didn't want to submit yourself to anyone or anything. You wanted to stay on that path. Correct. And so then what did you do? You submitted to God. So, you, so, you, so you're changing, in, in the language of what we're talking about here, you were changing your value system. Absolutely. From, I was getting my value from this. Not, and, and those were not bad things, having an income and a great income and a great retirement. Those were not bad things, but your value was in those things. Correct. Is that, is that it? Okay. Correct. And then, then what did you do? Um, the second thing I did was start to invest. So look, all of us have only 24 hours in a day, and how we choose to use that time is up to us. Um, and I chose to walk away from distractions and start investing in my relationship with God. What I mean by that is um, I quit watching movies and I quit watching TV, um, anything that was a distraction that wasn't productive. 
um, I quit doing that. And so I started investing um, in my relationship with God by reading the Bible daily, by having daily prayer that was part of it, reading other books that were going to uh, educate me towards having a better relationship with God. Um, and then I started um, intentionally seeking out mentors, uh, people who were leading a life that I wanted to be a part of and who reflected um, Christ and re reflected the type of person I, I was trying to be. In the FBI, we had a saying that if you hang around long enough with bank robbers, eventually you're going to drive a getaway car. And that is so very true. It's, this is not a cliche, little cute saying. Look, our circle of influence is so very, very important to us, and we have to watch who we let into that circle. Mm -hmm. And so I was very intentional about that, and I started seeking out these individuals who would take me to where God was calling me to be. So investing was huge. So for you, it was almost like you had to do, you were in such a position that you had to do almost, I, I, the thing that came to my mind is a juice cleanse, but a spiritual, <laughs> a spiritual cleanse. You're like, I got I to get rid of everything and put my investment somewhere else. Yes, you could say it that okay, way. Okay, yeah. yeah, and then what? Then what did you do? Um, so the big one um, really is faith. Um, that at some point, God is going to call us to action. We are not idle creatures. We are never meant to be idle creatures. And so um, faith is a big part of this. For me, what that meant was to leave a, uh, a job, a career, and go back to school full time um, so that I could one day lead a church. Now, let me put that in a better perspective. Let me say it a different way. What God was asking me to do was to give up a six-figure income with job security, incredible benefits, to go back to school at 45 to earn a degree that, if I'm lucky, will pay a third of what I made. That's faith. And so, here's the good news. That's what God called me to do. He's not going to call everyone in this room to leave your job leave your career, but he is calling you to action. And the question is, are you listening? Are you asking God, what, God, what do you want me to do with this life? Mm. And that's the important thing that we have to ask ourselves. And then what did that give you? Because now you have a different... <laughs> so yeah. what that gave me was um, perspective. So the best way I can, I can show this is, this was my life, Okay. Sorry, that fell on me. So this was my life, and this is how I saw my life. And I lived going from birth to death. And every decision I made was to better this end of the equation so I'd be comfortable at the end. And what we're saying here today is this is wrong. Throw this perspective away. So, and that's, and that's, the, that's the, Babylon says this is it. This is it. Get your peace. Correct. Okay. So, if we think about it, again, this is our earthly life. We still have a point where we're born and when we die here on this earth. But something unique happens there that we enter eternity, and this represents 10,000 years. And every time I do this, 10,000 years go, goes by. And you see when your perspective changes and you quit looking mm -hmm. at our earthly life and you start basing decisions on where you're going to spend eternity, your perspective changes. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened for me is that I no longer saw this little itty-bitty part of eternity. I saw the bigger picture. And with that, um, when your perspective changes, you no longer are interested in the system. You are no longer interested in the things that divide us, how the world wants to separate us, and how the world we, it uses culture and politics and everything. It's not important. When you start looking at how we're going to spend eternity, our perspective changes. Yeah. 
That's good. That's good. Well, here's what I want, to, I want us to do. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would, all right? And um, I, want us to, I, want us to, I want us to change our minds. The biblical word for changing your mind is to repent. And so uh, repentance is something that we're, um, we're to do all of our life. I hope, I hope you're not so uh, dialed into your reality that you think you have no changes that need to happen in your world. Uh, I hope I never get in the position where I think, yeah, I got it all figured out now and I don't have to change anything that I think. Uh, I hope that I'm always and continually saying, okay, God, I, I, I need to change my mind. I need to repent. And so well, I, I felt like this was important. Uh, if you remember way back, if you were here at the beginning of this series, I said this could be a time of personal spiritual renewal for you through the book of Revelation. And, and one of the things we have to do is we have to repent. We have to say, I'm leaving behind Babylon and I'm placing firmly my citizenship in heaven. And so, uh, just some, there's some things I just, I'm gonna put this on the screen. I want you to, I'm gonna have you read it silently. And then I, I, want, I want you, if you're ready, to say, I'm gonna repent. Uh, I'm gonna come out, like John says. I'm not gonna take my values from that. You're still in that. Okay, you still have to have a job. I'm, we're not saying, you know, go sit on a mountainside in a robe and meditate. We're not saying that. We're simply saying now you recognize where your citizenship lies. You're in it, but you're not from it. And now you side with the lamb. So if you say, I, I, and this is something you just have to do again and again, um, I, I, I'm going to ask you to s- repeat this with me. This is, this is between you and God, and you're saying this together with us. You ready? Here we go. We repent. We come out. Our citizenship is in heaven. We side with the lamb. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, thank you that you, um, you make us uncomfortable and you make us question the world that we live in uh, because you understand that there's no human system that's perfect. Uh, you came for this world. You came because this world was broken and you offered yourself on a cross because of the, the pain and oppression of the system, of the world. Uh, you were a victim of injustice and you did it for us, for our sins. We're the ones that our sins held you there. We recognize that, and we say thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you're the lamb who shows us a different way. And so we want to follow you. We want our citizenship firmly to be where you are. We change our thinking. So help us this week as we work to put this into practice in our everyday life, and that we shift our citizenship from Babylon to heaven. And so uh, give us the grace, the wisdom, and the courage we need to do that this week every day. We pray this in your name. Amen. You're sent now to love God, love people, and serve the world. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See ya.